Hi, Nicole. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am delighted. <laughs> um, I feel like that's the only way to kind of navigate time and space now mm. is to walk out with like a, you know, a little visage of delight yeah, and hope yeah. that delight finds me. Right. You know, let the smile fortify you. There you go. Yeah. Come on, poetry. <laughs> Yes, yes. Let I the smile yeah. fortify me. Yes, I understand that. I understand that. Um, I'm excited about today. Yeah, yeah. Our this episode is uh, it's a little different from what we're used to. Yeah, we're getting a little uh, engagingly academic. Mm, I like that. Thank I like you. That. Thank I like you. That. I'm not a poet, but I do have a facility <laughs> with words. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, on the show, we like to delve into what makes thirst thirst, mm. right? We talk about all the different elements and mm. all of that. And today we're going to focus on one particular element mm. uh, called humor. Love a bit of humor. <laughs> it's delightful. Yes. It's, uh, it's a good time. Yeah. It's basically the bit of thirst that I think might be the most intangible. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can spot a forearm. Right. You can see that someone is kind by the actions that they do. But right. humor is so subjective. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So we're going to try and uh, dig deep as to how humor affects the way that we actually desire. So this week, because we're doing something different, because because we're getting into uh, humor and all that that entails, we're not going to have a redacted no. that, o- that usually opens uh, our episodes. And unfortunately, we're not going to have any drabbles. That's okay. They can cope. Yeah, I think they'll they'll be fine because instead uh-huh. we have an incredible guest yes. in the studio today, Mr. Wyatt Snack. Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for our listeners out there who may be unfamiliar with Wyatt and, you know, maybe crawl out from under a rock, um, <laughs> we'll let you know that Wyatt was a writer on King of the Hill, corresponded on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He starred in Barry Jenkins' first full-length feature film, Medicine for Melancholy, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Big save. There's not a lot of humor in it, but we will definitely talk about it because I love that movie. (laughs) Fair. Um, He has starred in his own stand-up specials, one of which, Wyatt Cenac, Brooklyn, was nominated in 2015 for a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. And, you know, he's done voice work on such shows like BoJack Horseman, Archer, Bob's Burgers, and more. So obviously, this man is an expert. He knows his funny. But we'll get into all that after this message. <laughs> Was that you wanted me to do that, right? Yes, right? that okay. sounded good. No, we'll use it. We'll use I it. I like it. <laughs> Wyatt. Yes. I have a very basic question. Okay. Comedic skills, right? Is that something that can be taught or is it just kind of like you have it or you don't? That feels like that's kind of the age-old question. I think it can be taught. I think there are people who are naturally funny, but I also think that there are certain... There are enough places around the world that are teaching people comedy, whether Mm -hmm. it's improv comedy or stand-up or sketch that you can learn certain things as far as timing or those types of things. I think it's similar to music. Like, you can learn comedic theory just like you could learn musical theory. You mentioned um, comedic theory. (laughs) It sounds very academic. Like, are there courses that someone can take in college at a community college or something like that? Or, like, you know, empty nesters can go and be like, oh, you know, my kid's gone. Now let me go find a class. (laughs) Let me go get funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are there things that will teach that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of places. Like, I started out in L.A., and so in L.A. you had... Schools like the Groundlings, uh, Improv Olympic, the Second City had opened up out there, Acme. There were all these places that were offering like improv comedy. And I remember when I started, when I first moved out to L.A., I took classes at the Improv Olympic out there. And many of the people in my classes were uh, like people who were just 
trying to break out of their shells. Like they weren't even, they didn't even have an interest in comedy as a career. There were those people who were there like, oh yeah, I want to get on SNL and I heard that there's a pathway to that. And then there were people who were just like, yeah, I work in a corporate world and every now and again I have to sort of get up in front of people and talk and I'm hoping this could help me feel a little bit more confident doing that, but also maybe a little looser. So I, you know, I might not be able to go on stage and do an improv show, but maybe in the moment if, you know, the projector goes down, (laughs) I can sort of roll with it as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, seizing up, I can maybe make a joke and lighten the mood or do something like that. Mm-hmm. And so there are those places. I think what what happened as, you know, there was a comedy boom of the last 15, 20 years. And I think what you've seen sort of in the wake of that is a lot of those people who were signing up for those classes when they were just like, oh, I just want help public speaking. Those people got replaced with people from modeling agencies Mm -hmm. who were told like my agent said I should come here so I can learn how to like land a joke because I'm beautiful (laughs) and if I'm beautiful and I can you know not look disgusted when a fart comes out uh, I'll get all the jobs that's the requirement for Hollywood now that was I mean that was I would say like the early 2000s it was are you a hot person and if uh, if someone makes a fart noise, are can you effectively roll with it and mm. be the hot person farting? Wow, what That's, an insight into the industry at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, feel like the, I feel like so much of the late '90s, early 2000s comedy was like find the hottest people you can and make farts come out of them. <laughs> That's how you make money in America. Yeah. yeah. Think about all those Fairly Brother movies. Yeah. Like it was just like, yeah. let's get attractive people and like yeah. put bodily fluids on them and make <laughs> fart noises come out of them. Wow. Never thought about it like that. Yeah. And now that's all I'm thinking about. Yeah. Wow. And if you and if you spend a career doing that, then you can make the ultimate comedy of all the green book. Hey. <laughs> So you mentioned that comedy is something that um, can be taught. Um, people who are already funny can get better at it. People who aren't can be can they can learn the the mechanics of it. Was there a point in your childhood that you thought, oh, it turns out I'm the funny guy? Was there a moment where you understood without a shadow of a doubt that you could make people laugh? Kind of. I, I think for a long time I always appreciated comedy, and I always wanted to be funny. I always wanted to be funny and I would always look at like whether it was cartoons or TV shows and I would try to tell jokes and I would, you know, try to try to tell jokes to my mother, she would never laugh at me. <laughs> I would t- I I had a friend, my friend Brian Vaughn, he was the funniest person I knew as a child and he always had me in stitches and I remember one summer, he had moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and so then in the summertime, I would spend part of my summer in Cleveland with him and his family, and there was a day where I remember his friend Mary Shaughnessy was laughing at everything I was saying, and it was this moment of, ha, I figured it out, <laughs> and I was so just... Oh, okay, it's possible. You can do it. And prior to that, it was just, oh, Brian is the funniest person I know. And I would I would always laugh at everything he said. And I would just kind of watch with this uh, a certain amount of envy of, oh, wow, I wish I could uh, be as, as funny as him. Mm-hmm. And was that also the moment that you realized, oh, funny gets the girl? Because, I mean... It kind of sounds like maybe she had a crush on you as well. Not to say that you weren't being funny, but <laughs> but the, I sure mean, Mary she was, was laughing. But was she laughing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> that is so rude. I love it. Please answer the question. <laughs> no, because I think even after that, I I don't think that I equated sense of humor and attractiveness as as those things that if you're funny somebody finds you attractive i think as i got older and went to junior high and to high school 
I people would find me funny. Like the girls that I knew in my world at that time would say, "Oh, you're very funny," but there was also this like, "You're a friend to us," <laughs> and so there was, "Oh, you're just kind of like a funny friend." And funny never got me over the hump in that way, as far <laughs> as like, oh, okay, you're funny, and that's we will look past your nearsightedness <laughs> and <laughs> braces, and and uh, we'll kiss you. And <laughs> so those two things never seemed connected to me uh, in that in that way. It always seemed like, no, no, uh, you know, the very handsome people were the ones that the girls were were attracted to mm-hmm. and uh and then I was just kind of like the weirdo who would do st- stupid shit like what <laughs> well I'm just cuz as we're talking about this I'm thinking about when I was when I was a kid my uh my mother put me and my brother in Jack and Jill for a little while mm. and mm. I don't, know know, Jack- I, don't, I don't know what Jack and Jill is. Okay, so Jack and Jill is this organization for black parents who... It's really for black parents who want to hang out with other black parents, but they kind of put, like... they they The whole thing is about, like, black black youth getting together, the talented 10th of black youth all hanging out and networking and socializing. And what was weird was I grew up in Dallas, and so there's a Dallas Jack and Jill chapter, which is the very upwardly mobile Jack and Jill families. And then there was North Dallas, which was like the sort of suburbs outside of the city. And that was like all the Jack and Jill, uh, all the Jack and Jill families, you were either like from single parent households or like just like middle class, but like a struggling middle class. <laughs> and so there weren't like many doctors, doctors or lawyers in, in our Jack and Jill chapter. Uh, we were the poor Jack and Jill chapter, basically. <laughs> okay. uh, and so and I only say that because we had to do every year there would be like a teen conference thing where all the Jack and Jill chapters of a region would all get together and they'd stay in a hotel in, like, I remember we went to Louisiana or Mm. something like that. And so then you're supposed to do these, like, different, like, different events. And one of the things is, like, a fashion show. And for hours, we just had to use the clothes we had. And (laughs) we had to do... We had to do, uh, uh, and it was summertime, so it was like swimsuits were a part of it. And somehow I got in there, and I remember there were these two guys who were in our Jack and Jill chapter, uh, these guys, Quincy and Dale, who were cousins. And they did the swimsuits, and every like every girl in the crowd is like losing their stuff and Quincy Quincy was one of those guys who had like a perfect box where it was just yeah. like it looked like an eraser like it just had yeah, that yes. level and he was like he was this really dark chiseled guy and like he steps out there with like his swim trunks and like walks out and uh and the girls are just like oh my god <laughs> and Dale was also like he was like this handsome guy who was more like peanut butter complected. Mm-hmm. He actually went on. He left and joined the Mickey Mouse Club. Of course he did. Uh, um, wow. But uh, classic Dale. Yeah, that's, that's a Dale move. Uh, but he like came out and the girls was like ah, and then I came out and I had on like swim trunks. I had on a pair of Reebok pump sneakers that weren't even mine that my friend Cameron handed down to me because I could never get Reebok pumps on my own. So I got his that had no tread on them So because he had worn them out playing basketball. And so I had those and some swim trunks and, like, some prescription sunglasses on. And... I walk out and I feel like like people just laughed and I think somebody said bird chest and I just like and there was nobody like there was nothing on the back end of that where some girl came up to me and was like you know what you're brave and you're funny 
and I want to plant kisses on you. It was, it was get out of the way. Where's Quincy? And I need to catch Dale before he goes to the Mickey Mouse Club. It was out of the way, bird chest. How old were you at, at this time? I was probably like 16. Oh, plus. Oh, that is so... That's, yeah. <laughs> that's formative. Probably yeah, like that's... 15, 16, yeah. So it's it's in the hippocampus forever. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. that one's that one's stuck there. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Virtuous. Yeah. You won't know this, but on the show, Nicole has professed a preference for um, a bird chest. In fact, she calls it a strong bird chest. Yes. So, I mean, I... I you know, slim men, I don't have a problem with them. No. So if we had been, if I had been in Dallas at Jack and Jill, which I probably would not have been because no. I'm not light enough. And that's my exposure to Jack and Jill <laughs> oh, when wow. I was a young, a young oh, really? It was like a paper girl. bag test situation. Yes, it was very wow. much a bougie fair-skinned black kind of thing. I will um, say that we did not expect to get into a discussion about colorism. And I am <laughs> delighted that we have arrived here. <laughs> Personally, love a bit of a colorism yeah, debate. Okay. Yeah. But wow. if I had been there, I would have like nudged one of my girlfriends and been like, no, y'all should pay attention to him. <laughs> and I never could get like a good box. Like I never had yeah. that. Mm. So like my hair just is like... A texture thing. Yeah, it's just mm. like it isn't that dense in that way, but it's not like... If I couldn't do the other thing where I where it's like super like loose and curly. It was just right. like this weird in between thing. So it's also just like the hair's a mess too and yeah. try it like it's like Aww. you're just watching it's just a lot of effort. Yeah. That's that's that was that was me as a model. Just all effort. <laughs> no ease. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's that's a motto. Yeah. <laughs> all effort, no ease. Yeah. That's, that's a guarantee. Yeah. There's a there's a talent scout that's that's just watching and they're like, "Hmm, he makes it look like a lot of work." <laughs> that's what you that's what you want from a model, right? Yeah. Okay, so thirst is the performance of desire, and more often than not, it has to have humor in it in order to make it work. Um, how do you think, or why do you think humor is what keeps that kind of desire from being creepy and, uh, you know, crossing lines? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the I, I would sort of pose the question back to you when you when you're sort of thinking about that relationship between thirst and humor, who specifically are you thinking about? Or like, are there types of people? Cause is it, if it's somebody who's very attractive, I feel like humor plays this role of making them seem relatable, mm -hmm. which is different than somebody who we don't consider as attractive. Humor is, Humor winds up being the sort of asset that gives them a certain amount of uh, attractiveness because they seem smarter. They seem mm -hmm. like like humor to humor in an attractive person makes them seem more human. Human to a person that is considered average makes them seem somehow smarter. And so that to me feels like that's sort of the the difference that we that we. Like if you see if you see an, a super attractive person who's also funny, it's not that you want them to seem like oh they're super attractive and they're brilliant and they're like you you hate them for that mm -hmm. you but it feels like when they're funny it's almost like oh, okay they're slightly more relatable they can make fun of themselves they they in a weird way it's almost like acknowledgement of privilege or something like that right. that like. They're willing to kind of like make themselves look silly for uh, to make themselves seem more relatable. Mm. Like you were saying before, the model farting, like this yes. idea of I'm able to laugh at myself. I'm so stunning, but also I'm just like you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But I think when you then think about like people like somebody like, you know, Red Fox, who wasn't considered like a traditionally handsome person. I think humor makes him seem more attractive because, oh, look at how sharp and fast and quick his mind is. Mm -hmm. And I bet wherever he goes, he's going to be the funniest person in the room. And there's almost a power 
that comes with that that oh he can command a stage but he could also command a party and a room full of people and that feels somehow but that feels somehow different than the like the model who makes somebody laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that connection of humor and intelligence because I guess that's not something that we normally think about um, because you do have to be really sharp and you have to be really quick, particularly if you're the kind of person who roasts people from the stage <laughs> or something like that. And I think that also speaks to um, having this kind of public literacy in order to be able to read the room, figure out who to, you know, what kind of jokes to say or what kind of jokes not to say, yeah. um, those kinds of things. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I never it, speak, about that. it speaks to like, a, like you were saying about um, like being aware. It's like a, a very important spatial awareness. Yeah. Like, if I say this, where will it land? Uh, and when it lands, will it actually land? Right. I think about that all the time. Like whenever there are those scenes where people are kind of roasting, my thought almost every time is, I think I'm funny if I give myself five minutes. <laughs> but, but you can't give yourself five minutes. So much of it is reactive. Every time someone heckles a stand-up and the stand-up returns something, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, how is your brain doing that? Yeah, Because I'm always kind of like, yeah ah oh, crap and then, you, <laughs> and then you have to kind of come back and then in five minutes I'm like I'm back to my full strength and I have oh he's gone and I feel like that's that's where I'm at so I'm always I'm always slightly in awe of comedians who kind of do that quick mm-hmm. rapid fire kind of like no fuck your mom and then it's kind of like oh okay now we're all in this <laughs> we're all in this together yeah. I mean if your go to is just no fuck your mom <laughs> then I think you're fine okay, if that's great. just your go to for everything that that'll cover you on a stage thank or you. on the bus thank you <laughs> but but I think there is a difference there of like being on a stage mm. because there is a bit of magic that's at play there. That when you're on stage, you have control of a whole audience of people and the one person who decides to get unruly and disrupt the show, there are – whether you have jokes in your arsenal already to deploy or – you're just sort of taking it in the moment, you still have a certain amount of control of that situation. And often when heckling goes bad, it's when that sense of control, when the comedian loses that sense of control. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even still, most clubs have a security, have have a you know have security, have a bouncer who will eject a rude person or do something like that. But that feels very different to me than if you're you know in line at the DMV mm. and you know I, I don't know. Sometimes I would be curious for every comedian who's great in that moment on stage at dismantling a heckler. If in the real world, are they as effective or as adept? Because it's a different situation. All it's it's not what it's not what you're expecting. And on mm. st- on stage, you don't go in hoping that there's a heckler, but you know that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. In life, you don't know where the heckles are going to come from. The heckle could be you tripped on the sidewalk and you fell down. Or it could be someone, you know, a rude waiter or any of these things. And if you went through your life with your, you know, with your guard that far up mm. that like everything, like I've got to I've got to have a comeback for everything. <laughs> you're you, it would be a, a slightly more challenging way to live. That's true. I want to cross stitch that on, on a pillow. <laughs> Life's going to throw you some heckles like you don't, you don't know. Yeah. You can't plan for that. No. Um, OK, so. We were saying when we started doing the show and um, we were very aware that we wanted to do this show as two straight women thinking about other women. Um, and one of the things that we discovered is that thirst is highly gendered, especially on the Internet. I think some of my favorite expressions of thirst, um, not even some, all of my favorite expressions of thirst have come from women. Mm-hmm. I think women have learned to be equal parts uh, explicit and disgusting and hilarious in order to kind of soften the idea of female desire, which I think is still kind of seen as sort of scary and a little bit unknown. And so the result of that is 
incredibly funny, thirsty uh, commentary mm-hmm. wherever you go. And um, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many examples. Um, there's a great video um, of John Boyega and um, Oscar Isaac, two very handsome men. Um, who are reading some of the first tweets and the inventiveness in some of the first uh, the commentary from these people and it's all sorts of people, lots of women but other people too and it's just kind of it's staggeringly funny their responses are very funny and whatnot but sometimes the inventiveness that it takes to just say I like I would like that but it comes out in these poems of thirst. I, I mean, I think to your point, though, I ab- about thirst and it feeling gendered, mm-hmm. I wonder on some level if, at least on the male side of it, part of the challenge is that for so long, so much of male sexuality was possessive. And so th- even the idea of a man writing about a woman in a way that he finds her attractive it's still we still have those cartoon images of like cavemen bonking a lady on the head and dragging her and Mm -hmm. that is some of the some of the way that like thirst gets presented for straight men Mm -hmm. about women still kind of like rooted in some of those same those same kind of notions and ideas We've spoken about the way, like safe ways to express stuff because of the way the world has been ordered. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that we think about a lot as well when we're trying to kind of um, describe uh, desire and trying to think about it. Yeah, you know, because a lot of we do get complaints from men who obviously have never listened to our show. And they're like, well, if some guys did this, it would be called sexist and, you know, enjoy your double standards, ladies, and all that kind of shit, right? But it's like men do it. (laughs) Yes, men do it. And, you know, they don't... I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there who does it with the nuance that we do, but we're not just saying, oh, this guy is hot. Let's talk about his face and his butt and his abs. We're also talking about people's work and why they choose these roles and things like that. Like, we, Mm -hmm. this is actual, like, cultural criticism that we're doing. Right. But if it were men, it would just be, man, did you see ScarJo's butt in that (laughs) Avengers movie? Your man voice is really something special. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, there were two men in the studio. Where did Nicole go? (laughs) I just have to make them sound as stupid as possible because it's it's such a... Some complaints. Yeah, it's super reductive as well. Like yeah. you said, they haven't really listened. Um, what I love in addition to the, the the tweets from these people is their response to it as well. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually exhibiting a really fine sense of humor themselves. They're kind of laughing. There's one tweet where someone says, I want John Boyega to suffocate me between his thighs. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> hey, you know what? We all have our thing. And um, I mean, that also sounds like it's a cry for help. Yeah. Very- Really? Either way, oh, yeah. sweet relief. Um, and and John kind of laughs about it and Oscar kind of goes, yeah, that's possible. I have seen your thighs. And then they have a little moment where they both kind of talk about each other's thighs in a really kind of like bro-y way. Yeah. But it's still really kind of like, oh, they acknowledge stuff. And they're, they're funny as well. Like mm-hmm. half of the thing about dealing with thirst is also having a, a uh, an open, humorous um, thought process to it. Like it's funny. The point of thirst oftentimes is, yes, you're expressing this desire, but you're also being funny. I think of some of those tweets as really kind of like a playground to test your funny bone and see just how um, inventive you can be within these strictures. Like you're trying to express desire, but you're also trying to be smart and funny and witty about it. And I really like seeing people, um, you know, do all of that in like 180 characters. Right. (laughs) And funny. Women, the fact that most of the funny ones come from women, I think, is very important because uh, we it's hard for people to let women be funny, period. But especially on the Internet, we get a lot. I know I when I'm being silly, I get all these very earnest replies where people are trying to correct me or they're trying to teach me something or whatever. And it's like, just let women be silly on the Internet. You know? yeah. It's OK. Sometimes they'll they'll tell you, oh, that was really funny. And you're like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I selected the words. Yeah. Like, or they try to add on to your joke and yeah. it's like, no, just let it breathe. Yeah. Just let it I already did in. it. Yeah. I, I yeah. made the joke. I'm very funny. And then you end up sounding like a petulant joke. I'm the funny one. Yeah. Ah. Oh, that. I mean, I've had that 
just doing stand up, you starting out, you do shows and then someone from the audience after the show was like, I really enjoyed your set and starts offering you like, oh, no. hey, here's <laughs> like, you might also want to think about this. And so I think what's what's interesting is that that bad judgment has made its way from the clubs and it's on the Internet now, too, where somebody yes. <laughs> somebody feels like. Oh, like it's what was what would always be great is like I could never do what you do, and you were really funny. Also, here's a joke for you, and yes. it's like, <laughs> yep. mm, no, you that's a thank you, yeah, uh, and goodbye. <laughs> um, <A> great talk. <laughs> something though, I want to, I, I just something off of what you said in talking about women and their ability to be funny in this way mm. when it comes to thirst. I I also wonder, and I, I can only think about this from the perspective that I was kind of raised through, which is a masculine one, but I wonder, because so much of masculinity is also tied up in, I don't want to call it shame, but there's there's a strange thing in masculinity that doesn't allow men to appreciate other men publicly. So like even as you were talking about like Oscar Isaac and John Boyega sort of talking, making a joke about John Boyega's thighs, I feel like so much of masculinity that's rooted in this idea that if you were to even say something like that, you would automatically be, you know, someone would mock you or try to suggest that you're gay or something like that. And then masculinity is just this defensive posture of mm. like masculinity often feels like it's a defensive posture that takes form because so much of masculinity is rooted in homoeroticism that you're trying to deny. Yes. And, yes. And that, <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah. And so I wonder how much of that is, like, yeah. that inability to be comfortable with the fact that, like, oh, you, you know, whether it's UFC or football or superheroes, like, you're just watching men in their underwear, like, and and wishing you could be as strong or as sinewy as any of these men. It's mm -hmm. not just about their strength. It's about how they look. But you can't make that comment public. Yeah, yeah. I saw um, a really popular tweet where it was uh, a young black man. He said that he he had told another man that he was beautiful um, and got a lot of flack for that. So he was like, "If it's okay for men to say another man is ugly, that means you have looked at him and judged an appearance and said that he was this. So if you can say he's ugly, you can also say that he is not ugly. Right. So why is it such a problem to say?" he's not ugly to say this a man is beautiful and he you know he started to talk about how it's because men don't know how to compliment without the expectation of something for it so if you tell a woman if a man tells a woman you're beautiful then you expect her time you expect her to give you her number you expect her to give you sex you expect something whatever right. so if you compliment another man you're beautiful you're handsome then that means you must want the same thing from him, right? right? And it's like, no, what if you're just saying, you look good today, and that's yeah. it, you know? It's very hard for some men to understand that you can just give a compliment for free. Yeah. You don't have to, you're not trying to fuck everybody that you say is beautiful, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's amazing because every time I receive a compliment from a man, and by compliment, I'm being very loose. It's just someone going, <laughs> like, hey, beautiful, and I'm like, come on, like, come on. But literally on the way in today, some dude, like, was, I was, you know when you can spot mm. coming up the road? Yeah. I'm like, this guy's going to say yeah. something. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> he already made eye contact and I was like, ah, fuck. And then we kind of walk past and he does his whole whatever. And he before he begins speaking, he makes, like, these sounds like he's eating a meal. Ugh. So he does a, mm, and I'm just like, ah, I just oh, okay. don't, yeah. He was kind of like, mm, mm, and I was just but like. first when you said sounds like he was eating a meal, I was like, crunch, 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 <laughs> crunch. <laughs> <laughs> digestion mm. that would have been at least original okay he was just like mm, mm. and then he kind of says whatever he says and i don't acknowledge and i kind of jam my headphones in a little bit and i just keep walking but i just thought 
you didn't have to do any of that. And then every so often I get a compliment from a woman and I'm floating on air for like, because I'm again, I'm just kind of like, she just meant that. Like, right. There's no expectation following the compliment. But also, <laughs> is it the way that compliments happen? Because I feel like I, I don't know. I wonder when women compliment each other, like, is it much more like, oh, your hair looks great, or that mm. jacket is, like, that jacket, like, like that there's a little more depth to it other than, like... like Digestion sounds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just crunch, crunch, crunch. Mmm, uh, like... Uh, Spot on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's true. I think I'm so... I When a woman compliments me, it's rarely beautiful. It's always right. kind of like, oh, my God, love your nails. Yeah. Love those boots. I wanted to go back to something you said um, or what we were talking about with like these compliments uh, from women not meaning anything. And I think that also um, is why thirst tweets and posts on Tumblr work very well, particularly from women, because they're just putting them out there. They have no expectation that the celebrity is going to see it and right. the celebrity is going to show up on their door. Like, <laughs> I heard you want me to crush your head with my thighs. You know, like it's a very useless compliment. Like, you're so beautiful. I want you to cause me pain a little bit. But it's just it's just a quick little release, you know, just a little yes. bit of steam from the kettle and then they go That's on. quite the analogy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we have some tweets that we found especially amusing in the context of of thirst, and you don't have to comment on these or anything, but we we like them, so we're okay. going to share a few with. I, I'll I'll show you. I'll, I'll pass along yeah. my computer right. so you can have a look. All right. Okay. So this is from one of our uh, former guests on the show, Bolu, and this is another uh, expression of appreciation for romance thighs. In this okay. case, Winston Duke. And Bolu says, Winston Duke posted a picture of himself on a horse with his thighs out like a real criminal. What will you say on our notes app now that you have killed us? <laughs> I love it so much because it also ties in Beyonce's classic album, yes. Lemonade. <laughs> yes. Just, and the way that celebrities use the notes app to apologize and right. stuff like that. It's just, it's perfect. It's yeah. beautiful. I, well, I don't know why notes app is such a popular thing. <laughs> That's, I, I Yeah. It's, That's a weird... It's democratic. Yeah. Most people have a notes app. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so the, the next one, Nicole, do you want to uh, have a... <laughs> yes. Um, and so I'm going to read it, and then you can tell us why this is funny, Wyatt. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Matt Damon, I will use your ponytail to steer while you dine upon my lady sandwich, okay? <laughs> You know you want to laugh. <laughs> I did laugh. I did laugh. I'm, there's the part of me that's just, I'm curious, what was his ponytail from? <laughs> You're thinking from, about his IMDb right now? <laughs> well, this is from like 2015. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, So there's a part of me that's kind of like, what movie, what, like, what was this was that, person? Was he in like a samurai movie or something? Was, yeah. Oh, was, was, that that, what, was that what that was? The Last the, White Man in China or something. Yeah, yeah maybe that's that what one. it was. That's, I would love. I would love if that's all these movies just got retitled as like yeah, just any cop movie, just like aggressive white guys uh, like, at work. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Um, no, I I love this one because. Yes. It uses one of my favorite things in, in Thirst, which is a needless euphemism. I think we all know what a lady sandwich is. Um, but there's it's something. A, it's, a, it's one of those sandwiches that does has the cut the crust cut off, right? There you go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cucumbers yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, but what I love about it is that she says that. She says to steer, which, in, you know, takes my mind to the industrial west uh, of the past. I just, all of it is just, it's working for me. And, you know, she has such a genteel face in her avatar. You think, what's a nice lady like that doing? Oh, she's tweeting about Matt Damon and his ponytail and a lady sandwich. I, I love that. I love that tweet very much. No, it's very, there's something about it that also feels uh, very um, like uh, Jane Austen. <laughs> yes. It's, lady uh, sandwich. Yeah. I, I will yeah. use your ponytail. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so polite. Yeah. <laughs> if, if there was like a sort of trashy novella jane austen competitor out there like whoever that you know the lady who made twilight like whatever that story of yeah. how she just took uh what does she take or no 50 shades of gray they yeah. took twilight or uh -huh. whatever mm -hmm. that like i'd like to think that in jane austen's time there was 
a another writer who was like basically Fifty Shades of Graying Jane Austen, <laughs> yes. and this was one of this this lady sandwich was her invention. I would love that. <laughs> so this tweet says. Trevante Rhodes is so fine. He has the potential for three equally fine nicknames, Trey, Vaughn, and Tay. This message was sponsored by Trojan Bearskin Condoms and a Dream. (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten the sweet. I love it so much. It's the end of dream. Just help her achieve her dream. There's also a part of me that I feel like there's a movie that could be made or just a wacky sitcom episode about like three women who are dating the same guy that know him as Trey. One knows him as Trey, one knows him as Vaughn, and one knows him as Tay. Yeah. Look, there it is. I would watch it. Write it. Please write it. Yeah. You gotta we'll we'll help you. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, naturally. So, Trevante Rose worked with Barry Jenkins in Moonlight. You worked with Barry Jenkins in Medicine for Melancholy. We also have If Bill Street Could Talk with Stefan James, who we recently featured um, earlier this season. Barry Jenkins does not play when it comes to handsome black men in his movies. He does not. Would you like to include yourself? Do you feel okay including yourself in the handsome black men that Barry Jenkins elevates through his film? Selfishly, I'll take it, but I feel like I was there before there was a budget. <laughs> I, wow! I like I I'm budget handsome. I guess oh. I got a thousand bucks for that movie, and like that's uh, so I like there's I feel like if you know uh, Annapurna or I, I I can't remember who produced uh, if Beale Street could talk. I, I feel like. Uh, you know, Plan Plan B or any of those production companies he works with, they've got some money behind them. I feel like if he was making that movie now and he presented old old Birdchest Magoo over here, they'd be like, mm, "Let's let's keep you know, let's just keep auditioning people." And I think I don't think I would get to the you know the final three that we're looking at. I will say that you're entirely wrong. Yes. Because I watched Medicine for Melancholy. When did that movie come out? 2008. Okay, yeah. so I was, you know, I was I was younger than I am now. Mm. But, like, I watched that movie, and I remember kind of thinking to myself, I, after I watched it, I was like, hmm, should I move to San Francisco? Mm. Like, are the roads paved with, like, black dudes who are thinking about gentrification and shit? Because I was mm. really into that at yeah. the time. <laughs> sure, yeah. So I will say this, like, yeah, maybe you consider yourself in the grand scheme of things at this point, budget handsome. But in 2008 and beyond, Wyatt, that's untrue. And I want you to know that. I want you to leave the studio knowing that. Well, that was also before the financial collapse. So, yeah, in 2008. Yeah, it we does seem. Rich. Yeah, we were all money. You know, we were there. Home loans were being approved. that shouldn't have been approved. I bought a mansion. I was 19. It was right. fine. Yeah. 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 No, it's yeah. It was a different financial state. So, yes. Yeah. For 2008, it works. But yeah. then the market crashed and. It was like, no, no, we can only put our resources in the Trevante roads. That's entirely fair. Um, I'm still willing to uh, what's the word? invest yes. in, what was it you just said? Birchess Magoo? Yeah. Shout out to you. Um, yes. It was a very important film for thank me. You. I, no, all, no, thank you. All jokes aside, I really, yeah. really love that movie. <clears throat> me too. I thought it was just like this, something that you just didn't see a lot of. Right. Back then or even now, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I really like the film. It actually, um, it kind of put me on on a particular kind of path when it came to screenwriting and looking at movies as something to study. And I mean, I was an adult, obviously, when I saw it, but Mm -hmm. it just gave me a different perspective on how to look at film. And um, I... I love that movie. I bought it, downloaded it, and that's what I watch sometimes when I'm traveling. If mm-hmm. I'm not, my travel movies are Medicine for Melancholy, Psycho, um, The Man from Uncle, and Dirty Dancing, and House Party. Okay. An eclectic bunch. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just gotta, it depends on my mood. Yeah. You know? right. life's, life's gonna throw you some heckles. Yeah. You wanna um, be ready. <laughs> do you think that you, um, would you do another kind of romantic, drama 
film like that again, another indie romance kind of film um, in the future? So I don't, I've never really considered myself an actor. Like I, I haven't done acting classes. It was always, comedy was always the thing that I wanted to do. And I, I love Barry to death and I'm so grateful that Barry put me in that film. What was funny was, and, and Barry and I have talked about this, I was broke when I said yes to do that film. I just needed money. And I remember he had like reached out to me because he saw me. Someone was showing him video of somebody else and I was in the background. And he was like, oh, that guy might be interesting. And so the person who had shown him the video was like, oh, I know him. And like Barry, I meet Barry at some house in L.A. We, I read the scene we kind of like improvise for a little bit and he's like, would you want to do this? And I, and I was like, I don't know. And then he was like, it'll pay you a thousand dollars and you'll get a place to live for a month. And I was like, then I'm in. (laughs) And, but when I did the film, you know, people would always ask when the film came out, was there, did you know that it would be like a good thing? And I thought, it's. It seems like an interesting story, but at the time, I, I didn't think anyone would see it. I just thought, oh, this will be this cool thing. It'll probably be on, like, a blockbuster video shelf. Mm-hmm. And maybe, like, the whatever, the 16, 17-year-old version of somebody like me who s- saw Maddie Rich and the Inkwell and, <laughs> you know, and, and thought, like, oh, okay, yeah, there's somebody who's making films for black you know black people that aren't the you know the same formula of films that there is space for that but i didn't think that it would have the kind of reach that it did and i'm utterly like both astounded by it and confused because i like when it comes to those things i just don't have the sort of uh like I feel like Barry's true skill as a director was getting somebody like me who the that stuff doesn't totally come natural for and he was able to get something out of me that made me seem like a much better actor than I actually am mm-hmm. um and so if somebody else were to approach me with something like that I I feel like I don't know what it would take for me to say yes because in that instance it was, well, I'm broke. And I, I like if he came to me today with that script and was like, hey, do you want to do this? I think my instinct would be I don't think I'm the right person for this. And so often, even with like other things I've done, people have given me scripts and said, hey, we'd like you for this part. And I have given the script to someone else and said, hey, they reached out to me about this, but I actually think you would be good at this and have like passed things on because I was like, I don't see like, I don't think I could play this. I think that person could play it. I think they'd kill it. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know that I, uh, I I don't know that it's something that I would actively uh, seek out and I would probably need to be either very broke or (laughs) convinced why I would be the person best suited for it because yeah the director in my brain is like mm, I don't know Andre Holland's pretty great <laughs> He's, and he can hit all the marks and he knows all the acting tricks I, <laughs> I, I don't I I swear whenever I do like when I did a tv show I uh I'm Learned my lines as I walked to set, and I never did them twice the same way. (laughs) We look forward to seeing whatever you do next. Um, Thank you so much for coming into the studio, Wyatt. You have been an absolute (laughs) pleasure. Thank you. And we're going to have quite the job editing this. Don't put it all out. Put it. I signed up for this thing uncut. I want the moment where I had a coughing fit and you walk out and then the three of us just kind of awkwardly sit here until you get back. I want that. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, 
I want the moment where for seven minutes straight, I just yelled, pizza, 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 until it became a, a rhythmic beat that we all started doing. I want all of it. Thursday Kit is a Slate production produced by Cher Vincent and us, Nicole Perkins and Bim Adewunmi. Our music is by Tanya Morgan. A massive shout out to Wyatt Sinak. Uh, you can follow him at Wyatt Sinak, all one word, on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow the show on Twitter at First Aid Kit. And we are at Bimadew, that's B-I-M-A-D-E-W, and Tennessee Whiskey Woman, that's T-N, Whiskey with an E, Woman. Plus, we are on Tumblr at thirstaidkitpodcast.tumblr.com. And if you send us a question over there, we might could answer it. <laughs> we know some of you like to live tweet your listen, and we appreciate you. We see every last tweet. Continue to use the hashtag TACPOD, that's T-A-K-P-O-D, but you can also send us your thoughts via email. We're at thirstaidkit at slate.com. If you've got a thirst that needs refreshing, who are you going to call? Thirst sommelier. Uh, call and leave a brief message about what kind of thirst object you're in the mood for at 510-984-4778. That's 5109-THIRST. Non-US thirst buckets can send us a short voice note. We really do mean short. Less than a minute, please. Via email at thirstaidkit at slate.com. We know we ask this every week, but it really does make a difference. If you like what you hear, please head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and five stars. One, two, three, four, five. Please and thank you very much. We are now officially in the last month of the year, but that doesn't mean your thirst had to take a back seat. Stay warm, stay thirsty, and we will be back next week. Bye. Bye. Okay, I think maybe we could do one more tweet, but I have a question for you. How familiar are you with the Fenty Makeup Foundation Shade range? Um, I mean, as a licensed Fenty dealer, <laughs> I am familiar with pretty much everything. I go door to door uh, because if I sell enough Fenty, I know I'm going to get a brown Mercedes. <laughs> That's that's the thing, right? That's the dream. Yeah, Mary Kay had those pink Cadillacs and Rihanna's got brown Mercedes. <laughs>